Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Charts with Dan. Today, we are talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife. It was a hit at the box office, exceeded a lot of expectations, but we're also going to look at the critical reviews of the movie coming in below 2016's Ghostbusters, which surprised some people, including myself. We're going to get down into those numbers and everything else. Thank you so much for watching, and just a reminder that if you want to take this show on the go and listen to it as an audio podcast, I now have an audio channel. You can find all those links right down there in the description below. Just want to make sure that everybody can enjoy the shows in any format that they want to, whether it's here on YouTube or as part of the podcast. So let's get started with looking at the weekend box office. And number one with just over $44 million was Ghostbusters Afterlife. As I mentioned, it did exceed expectations. There were some as low as 30 to $35 million, but partly because of good audience word of mouth, the movie was able to basically go up every time they did an estimate this weekend. But a very important point to make here is that the budget of Ghostbusters Afterlife is reportedly about half of what 2016's Ghostbusters cost to make. Reports have the budget of Afterlife at around $75 million. Reports of the budget for 2016's Ghostbusters have it between $140 and $150 million. So to come in uh, about $2 million below the opening of 2016's Ghostbusters, but with half the budget, is good news for this movie so far as far as making money in the theatrical window, especially when you add to the fact that we are still, uh, for many people, in the pandemic we have the abbreviated release windows so that may have helped to drive down attendance a little bit the other thing that i'm going to be looking at is that the timing of this movie coming right before thanksgiving week with the word of mouth it had an a minus cinema score uh, the audience scores are very high on various sites for the movie is that word of mouth going to boost ghostbusters afterlife this week some kids are already out of school other kids will be getting out of school later this week this is a movie that skews towards a younger audience but also one uh, and I can say for this Ghostbusters fan uh, that can also uh, take their parents and give them a great movie experience. Will this boost the weekly performance of Ghostbusters Afterlife as we go into the Thanksgiving holiday? It will certainly have a lot of competition. We have Encanto opening this week. That's the biggest competition for the family market. But I'm going to be watching this very closely to see if this positive word of mouth on the audience side is going to boost Afterlife and help that bottom line as it goes through its domestic theatrical window. Looking at where this opening stands with other films in the Ghostbusters franchise. When you look at the raw numbers, 2016's Ghostbusters is still at the top, uh, almost exactly a $2 million higher opening than Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's in the second position. Ghostbusters 2 in third place with $29.4 million back in 1989, and then the 1984 original with $13.6 million. But when we have a franchise that spans the decades, you know what we love to do on this show, adjust for inflation. And when you adjust for inflation, Ghostbusters 2 takes the top spot with a $66.8 million debut. 2016 falls to number two with $47.9 million, followed by Afterlife with $44 million, and then 1984's Ghostbusters comes in with $36.5 million. Something very important to remember, though, uh, the original Ghostbusters coming in at the tail end of the old way of distributing movies, which would be to have it in a smaller number of theaters, and then it would play out over many, many, many weeks. Uh, And so the final gross on 1984's Ghostbusters was, was massive. By the time Ghostbusters 2 came out, we had a little bit more of the modern system where you flood the marketplace with the movie right there in the first release. You get that big pop of the opening number. It was really kind of the beginning of that cycle when we're talking about that movie and Batman uh, 1989 and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was the beginning of the modern way of distribution. So as always, caveats and things to keep in mind when we're looking at these different films. Given its overperformance of expectation, the only real cloud for Ghostbusters Afterlife this weekend was the critical 
reaction. It's not a rotten movie on Rotten Tomatoes, but it was trending downward for much of the weekend. It stabilized right around 62%. But what really surprised a lot of folks is that it, it, right now it's about 12 points lower than 2016's Ghostbusters. That one is a certified fresh movie at 74%. The audience scores very far apart, although keep in mind that was before Rotten Tomatoes revamped their audience system so that you could have verified ratings, people that could actually prove that they'd seen the movie versus uh, what was happening around Ghostbusters 2016, uh, where anybody could rate the film. And as we all know, that was a very hotly discussed and debated movie. I'm not discounting that audience score because I do think, even when looking at things like Cinema Score, that audience response is decidedly more positive with this film. But it is yet another divide between critics and audiences. So I wanted to dive down into those numbers a little bit, maybe dispel some myths and rumors that have been going around this weekend, and maybe try to get down to the heart of why it is that Ghostbusters Afterlife can be such, it seems like, a bigger hit with audiences in general, and yet not be as much of a hit with critics. First and foremost, when you dive down beyond just the tomato meter, the binary fresh rotten rating, these movies are actually much closer together than you would think. When you look at the average score of Ghostbusters Afterlife and 2016's Ghostbusters, they're not that far apart. The average score being critics that decide to give a rating uh, between 1 and 5 or 1 and 10 or A through F, it's all normalized on a 1 through 10 scale on the Rotten Tomato site, although you have to look to find it. One of uh, a few complaints I have about the system. 2016's Ghostbusters has an average critics rating of 6.5, while Afterlife has an average critics rating of 6.1. So this indicates that critics, on average, rated the films very similarly, but it seemed like a lot of critics who were perhaps in the middle were more likely to rate 2016's Ghostbusters positive and Ghostbusters Afterlife negative. It's that sort of fence-sitting we were talking about with Eternals, where you just have a tendency to list this way or that way uh, when it comes to a movie, and and it really does kind of skew the perception critically of the film. I think one thing that contributes to that gap between the ratings is that when you look at the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes, now these are the critics that are defined by Rotten Tomatoes, and this is a quotation from their website, as well-established, influential, and prolific. A lot of the legacy critics, the people that have been uh, doing this job for years and years and years, a lot of traditional uh, journalism critics, but they've also started uh, having a lot of online critics added to this group as well. Top critics rated Ghostbusters Afterlife 39% rotten with a 4.9 average rating compared to 2016's 71% fresh and a 6.4 average rating. So a really big gap there, a lot by average rating, even more by percentage. And I did the math. This alone is not enough to account for the, the swing all the way down from 74% to 62% in the critical reviews. It could account for several percentage points, but not all of them. This would be a contributing factor. But this is one area where we do see not a case where you have a similar rating, but people kind of listing a little bit more negatively. This is one where you see a pronounced separation in critical response, and I think it shows that the more nostalgic feel for the movie uh, did not reach the top critics on Rotten Tomatoes in a way that it reached many of the other critical groups, and it seems the audience at large. Now, there are a lot of theories to try to explain the critical score for Ghostbusters Afterlife, and one that I saw in a lot of different places was that uh, that a, a 
large number of critics on Rotten Tomatoes were rating Ghostbusters Afterlife rotten to sort of prove a point where they had rated 2016's Ghostbusters fresh. And so I decided to dive into the numbers, and when you examine the reviews, uh, the, the actual facts do not bear this theory out. Looking at all of the reviews for Ghostbusters Afterlife, 65% of the people who reviewed Ghostbusters Afterlife did not publish a review for 2016's Ghostbusters on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't know what these people actually thought of the movie, but they did not contribute to 2016's Rotten Tomatoes score. When you look at the remaining reviews, so basically the other one-third of the reviews that came in for Ghostbusters Afterlife, 13% of critics rated both 2016's Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters Afterlife fresh. Then you have 11% that belong to this group that some people were pointing the finger at. These are people that rated 2016's Ghostbusters fresh and 2021's Ghostbusters rotten. 5% were actually down on 2016's Ghostbusters. They labeled it rotten and Ghostbusters Afterlife fresh. And then 6% of reviewers just were not on board with Ghostbusters in any way, shape, or form. They rated both 2016's Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters Afterlife rotten. So there was not this large contingent of critics that uh, were trying to make a stand. And, and it does not account for even close to the amount of reviews as far as percentage point drop uh, that would explain uh, why Ghostbusters Afterlife was lower than 2016's Ghostbusters. For the record, I was not a part of Rotten Tomatoes' rating system back in 2016 when Ghostbusters came out, but I would have been part of that fresh, fresh category. Uh, I would have submitted fresh ratings for both movies, although I will say I am much more enthusiastic on my feelings about Ghostbusters Afterlife, whereas I've cooled somewhat on 2016's Ghostbusters since it came out. I still don't hate the film. I think part of the big reason why a lot of people may dislike it is that they stupidly pushed uh, as the default for a lot of people, the director's cut of the movie, which I think is demonstrably worse than the theatrical cut for the 2016 film. But it's still a movie that I don't think is terrible, and I know that a lot of people disagree with me. I'm just a big fan of Afterlife, uh, and would have rated both of those movies fresh if another intrepid reporter like myself were to be going into the data and I were listed back in 2016. Looking at the overall critical picture and looking at these two scores, I think a safe conclusion would be that in general, critics reacted about the same, although a little more coolly on Ghostbusters Afterlife, but only a little bit. However, established critics, top critics, were far more negative about Ghostbusters Afterlife, and I think it may just be that the tone of the film, the fact that it leaned more heavily on your love for the first movie. I was looking at these reviews and the word nostalgia, nostalgia, nostalgia kept popping up, especially in the rotten reviews of this film, and I addressed in my review of the film why I don't necessarily think that nostalgia is a bad thing, and I think that this movie, in my opinion, was nostalgia done well, but the only real divide that we see here is in those top critics ranking. They reacted much more positively to 2016's Ghostbusters and much more negatively to Ghostbusters Afterlife, but the audience in general reacting much more enthusiastically to this film, it seems, overall. We'll see how the box office does, and listen, this is not the first time that critics and audiences have been out of step with each other. It happens all the time. I just think because the focus on Ghostbusters has been so hyper-specific, especially since 2016 and leading up to the release of 2016's Ghostbusters, but I think this is really kind of a perfect storm of a movie that top critics did not react quite as well to as even other critics, and the binary fresh rotten system kind of skewing the feelings either way on both films. 
Let's look at the rest of the box office top five. In second place, Eternals with just over $11 million. Let's look at where that tracks with the MCU in general through 17 days of release. We've been looking at these numbers with Shang-Chi and Black Widow, and we see Eternals now with the third lowest cumulative domestic total in the MCU, just over $136 million. That puts it ahead of only Ant-Man and The Incredible Hulk. It's right behind Captain America, the first Avenger. You see Black Widow with $154 million through 17 days, and then and Shang-Chi this year, the top grossing Marvel film through 17 days with $176.8 million. So Eternals lagging behind a bit. We'll see if it is able to make up some of that ground with the holiday weekend families going uh, over Thanksgiving. Although again, there is a lot of competition with Ghostbusters, with Encanto, with other things. Keeping in mind that the release schedule is pretty crazy. And we've talked about it. The fact that you don't have very much time between releases. They're all just stacked up one after the other after the other. Even even more so than during the summer movie period in a lot of summers. So one factor being that Eternals is surrendering a lot of screens, a lot of premium formats, etc. That's not only hurting Eternals, but I think has contributed to a lessening of grosses across the board. And the fact, of course, that people, a lot of them are still staying home or waiting to watch movies at home because they're just not yet ready to go back to the theater. But even looking at the other COVID-era Marvel releases, Eternals still lagging behind the other two from this year. Of course, I expect their final release, Spider-Man No Way Home, to be ahead of all three of these films, and I think we're going to be looking at a big box office number for that. At number three in its second week was Clifford the Big Red Dog with $8.1 million. King Richard, a very buzzy awards movie starring Will Smith as the father of Venus and Serena Williams, coming in below expectations, $5.7 million. This is another HBO Max hybrid release, and we have seen this over and over again, that it, it seems to be a good model for some of their bigger movies, your Mortal Kombat, your Godzilla vs. Kongs, but it really does seem to be suppressing the crowd for films that skew a little bit older adding that to the fact that older audiences are also slower to return to theaters. So another disappointing debut for a Warner Brothers HBO Max hybrid film. Dune in its fifth week earning just over $3 million. It is slowly creeping towards $100 million domestically. As we've been doing these past several weeks, let's look at 2021's box office compared to both 2020 and 2019. And you see an uptick from last week, which is good, uh, but still far from even competing with the equivalent weekend in 2019. That's because that was the debut of Frozen 2, uh, and it doesn't look like next week is going to be much better. We'll see what Encanto does, uh, as well as the second week of Ghostbusters Afterlife, but uh, I really think that a couple of weeks from now is the best chance that we're going to have. Uh, who knows, though? You never quite know what's going to pop at the box office, but again, uh, if you look at this, the pattern's staying mostly the same. We are getting closer and closer or two 2019's equivalent box office total. So we're seeing attendance patterns return to normal, just not the number of attendees. So we will continue tracking this. Will there be a weekend where these two lines collide and meet? It's looking less and less like a possibility, but we still have a few weeks this year in order for that to happen. We did have some big news in the limited release space, and that is because an independent film named Come On, Come On from writer-director Mike Mills debuted in five theaters and brought in a per-theater average of 20 $25,939. I reviewed Come On, Come On along with King Richard and Tick, Tick, Boom.
Boom, which is a movie that we're going to discuss a little bit later in the show. If you want to check out those reviews, you can see uh, the little icon up there in the corner. I'm actually going to be doing several reviews as we get to awards season, packaging together a lot of these movies with awards buzz. I really enjoyed this movie, and it seemed like there was demand because Come On, Come On now has the highest per theater average of any film in 2021. It helped that it was only playing in five theaters, but it beats out the debut of The French Dispatch, which earned $25,939 in 52 theaters in its debut. Come On, Come On beating that with $26,889. Three Marvel films uh, now hold the three, four, and five spots as far as per theater averages. Venom, Let There Be Carnage, Black Widow, and Shang-Chi, and The Legend of the Ten Rings at three, four, and five. Speaking of the limited release box office, and these are movies that are playing in 1,000 theaters or fewer, let's look at that chart. And there are some movies like Spencer and The French Dispatch that have been on this chart uh, that started out in fewer than 1,000 theaters, then went up over 1,000 and are now below. I'm not relisting them on this chart because their release did get over that 1,000 theater threshold. So these are only movies that have ever played in 1,000 theaters or fewer. For the second week, Belfast tops the charts with $945,000 in 584 theaters, a slight expansion from last week. Suryavanshi stays on the chart for a third week with another $237,000. That film out of India still bringing in crowds in 215 theaters. India Sweets and Spices, which is from writer-director Gita Malik, debuts on the charts in third place, $170,000 in 343 theaters. Then the movie that has set the per-theater average mark for 2021, Come On, Come On, in fifth place at $134,000. And the documentary The First Wave, which covers frontline workers in New York City at the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, is in fifth place in 11 theaters with just over $60,000. Let's take a look now around the world outside of the domestic market to see what the top five movies were internationally and the Chinese film Be Somebody on a weekend where the international box office didn't really pop that much takes the top spot with $23.8 million. Eternals is second with $22.7 million. Another Chinese film The Door Lock is in third place with $19.9 million. Ghostbusters Afterlife was able to bank $16 million in the markets in which it opened and then No Time to Die still showing strength globally with $13.4 million. So when you take that market, combine it with the demand Domestic market, you get the top five grocers worldwide. And the strong debut of Ghostbusters Afterlife domestically means that it is the number one movie in the world with just over $60 million. Eternals is second with $33.7 million. Then the two films from China, Be Somebody and The Door Lock at numbers three and four. And then with another $16.1 million, No Time to Die remaining in fifth place. Let's look at the 2021 box office chart overall, and domestically, a little bit of movement this week. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings remains number one. It does not look like Venom Let There Be Carnage is going to be able to overtake it as the number one movie of the year domestically. Black Widow is at number three. F9 is at four. A Quiet Place Part Two is at number five, and No Time to Die is at number six. Eternals is able to jump over Free Guy. It moves up one spot to become the seventh highest grossing film of the year with $136 million. Free Guy drops down down one spot to number eight. Jungle Cruise stays at number 9. Godzilla vs. Kong stays at number 10. But as I mentioned, Dune is very close to that $100 million mark and I suspect will pass Godzilla vs. Kong next week if Ghostbusters Afterlife doesn't have a huge boost. If Ghostbusters Afterlife does really well in its Thanksgiving week box office, we could see it jump over Dune and be the number 10 movie next week. We'll just have to see what that performance is. Looking at the 2021 worldwide chart, The Battle at Lake Shangjin is at number 1. Hi Mom is at number 
number two, a big move for No Time to Die. It jumps over F9 to become the highest grossing film not made in China of 2021 with $734 million. F9 drops down one spot. Detective Chinatown 3 stays at number five, and the rest of the chart also stays the same. Godzilla vs. Kong at six. Venom Let There Be Carnage at seven. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings at number eight. Black Widow at number 9, and Dune at number 10, with just over $367 million. Before we look at the streaming charts, I always like to take a look back at a box office weekend from years past, and this week we are going back 25 years ago when one of my personal favorite films, because it's a franchise that's very dear to my heart, came out. We're going back to the weekend of November 22nd through 24th, 1996, and 25 years ago this past weekend, Star Trek First Contact made its debut with 30 $30.7 million. That was a high watermark for the franchise up to that point. Uh, the story of the Borg really brought in a, an action crowd. I went and saw this with my uncle. We were both big Star Trek fans, and this remains one of my favorite Star Trek movies. I think easily the best movie of the Next Generation crew. That was at number one. In its second week, Space Jam was at number two with $16.2 million. Ransom, starring Mel Gibson, in its third week was a strong number three with $13.1 million. Debuting in fourth, it, it, it's kind of a, a cult holiday classic now, but Jingle All the Way, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, did not have a huge debut on its opening weekend with $12.1 million. And finally, the Barbra Streisand movie, The Mirror Has to Face This, co-starring Jeff Bridges, was number five in its second week with just over $8 million. As we close out the show, let's turn, as we always do, to the streaming charts to see what people are buying and renting at home. And we start with Amazon. At number one on Amazon, No Time to Die, available via premium video on demand stays at number one followed by free guy and dangerous last night in soho part of the abbreviated window that universal was able to negotiate uh to get movies in home sooner is at number four available premium video on demand old henry is at number five the grinch the illumination version is at number six f9 is at seven jungle cruise hits the rental chart at number eight Stillwater is at number nine and the many saints of newark having ended its hbo max exclusivity window is now available for premium video on demand on amazon it comes in at number 10. Looking at what people are watching over on iTunes, No Time to Die is at number one. Free Guy is at number two. Old Henry, which is a strong streaming presence for several weeks now, is at number three. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is at number four, available for purchase. F9 returns to the charts at number five. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the Jim Carrey film, is at number six. Jungle Cruise is at seven. Illuminations the Grinch is at number eight, so people feeling very Grinchy on iTunes this week. Last Night in Soho, available premium video on demand, is at number nine. And I guess a lot of people itching to revisit the original Ghostbusters either before or after they saw Ghostbusters Afterlife because 1984's original film is at number 10 on the iTunes charts. Let's look at Netflix and we're going to start first with what is trending here in the United States today. But we also have a new chart that I'm going to debut in just a moment. Right now, the top 10 on Netflix in the United States, Red Notice at number one. Cowboy Bebop at number two, the Netflix original series, live action. A new season of Tiger King puts it at number three. The Netflix original series Hellbound is at number four, another debut. The Queen of Flow, another Netflix series and a debut is at number five. Arcane League of Legends is at number six. Made is at number seven. The Netflix original movie The Princess Switch 3 is at number eight. Narcos Mexico at number nine. Squid Game at number 10. So another week without Coco Melon on the chart. It looks like it may be gone for good. We will see. 
after all the carnage that erupted here last week. I barely got the studio back in shape uh, in time to do the show this week, but uh, another week without Coco Melon. Perhaps this is the new norm. Looking at just the movies that people are watching on Netflix, Red Notice is at number one, The Princess Switch 3 at number two, the Netflix original film Extinct is at number three, the original film Love Heart is at number four, The Harder They Fall is at number five, here Comes the Boom is at number six. It is not, however, a prequel to Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a Netflix original, which is at number seven. One of my favorite movies of the year so far, featuring an incredible performance from Andrew Garfield. That's part of that review collection that I talked about earlier. I highly recommend that movie. American Reunion enters the chart at number eight. The Holiday is a holdover at number nine. And then Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is at number 10 in the U.S. on Netflix today. So a lot of people getting into the holiday spirit. But something that also came out this past week is a new metric for viewership that Netflix announced. They launched a site called Netflix Top 10 where they are releasing the global top 10 as well as by country. So if you live in a country that has Netflix, you can now look at the top 10 in your country. This data is listed by week, so it's not daily, it is weekly. And the new metric that they're using here is by total hours watched. So before, when we would talk about Netflix, the metric that they released was that they would count a view as, I believe, two minutes of somebody watching. That counts as a view. Here, they are changing their metric. They said to be more transparent about how they report what viewership is. And so this data is listed by total hours watched, which I think is a much more useful metric. So we're going to be featuring now every week here on the show, the overall global top 10. Now Netflix doesn't generate this specific list. I aggregate this from the information that they provide, but this is basically the top 10 most watched programs of any kind on Netflix globally. So we're stepping outside of the United States to look around the world. And here's what the debut of this list looks like. There is a slight reporting delay here. So this data is from the week of November 8th through the 14th. And again, these are the most watched programs globally on Netflix. At number one is the Netflix original movie Red Notice, which they report clocked 148.7 million hours watched. And when you look at the other watch time, this is by far the most watched thing on Netflix globally. You can see now just how popular this movie is. Many people watching or re-watching it. The original movie Love Hard, the second most watched thing on Netflix worldwide with 58.5 million hours watched. Then the third season of Narcos Mexico with 50. 2 million hours. Squid Game, the number four most watched program globally with 42.7 million hours watched. Then Arcane, the first season with 34.1 million hours watched. The third season of the Netflix original series You comes in at number six with 33.7 million hours watched. Then The Harder They Fall, the Netflix original movie with 33 million hours watched, followed by the original series Made with 29.4 million hours. And then this is very interesting, the fourth season of Dynasty, which is the only non-Netflix program that's on this list with 21 million hours. And I think that this is really noteworthy because this is also a program that is not particularly popular here in the United States where it's produced. It airs on the CW uh, TV network here. It is available for streaming on Netflix here, but it's not in the top 10 on Netflix. This is a program that is popular almost exclusively in other countries. They list where this show is popular. It's a top 10 show in Canada and several countries in the Caribbean, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia and New Zealand. It is the most watched TV show on Netflix in countries including Belgium, France, Kenya, Jamaica, the Bahamas, and many more. But here in the United States, when it airs on television, it gets about 250,000 viewers or less each and every week. And again, 
not a perennial favorite on our Netflix top 10. This is a very interesting case of a TV show that almost certainly would have been canceled a long time ago here in the United States, but they were able to sell exclusive international distribution to Netflix and its popularity keeps the show profitable just on that basis. So they're basically making a television show here in Dynasty that they know nobody really cares about in the United States just to keep that production going because they know it is very lucrative streaming overseas. This is another way that the entire economy of entertainment has changed due to streaming. We have global demand now driving the production of a domestic show. This is one reason why I'm glad they're making this data available. So you can see things like Dynasty that are driven by overseas interests and remain in production because they are popular outside of the United States, in spite of the fact that it is not particularly popular here. And that's all that I've got for this week. It's a busy week at the movies, however, and an unconventional week because of the Thanksgiving holiday. We start getting movies on Wednesday. Encanto comes out on Wednesday. House of Gucci comes out on Wednesday. I will be going tomorrow night and hopefully bringing you a review on Wednesday. I'm very curious about that movie. Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City also hits theaters on Wednesday. So many different options for what you might want to check out at the box office this Thanksgiving week. A lot to track. I'll be back next week with all of those numbers. Thank you so much for watching. Stay safe, have a happy Thanksgiving, and I'll see you soon. Bye.